0: To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Or click the link in the show notes.
1: Attacking that and making sure that the city has, that there's a variance process, whatever that process is, get it started soon, sooner rather than later and deal with that issue because that issue will affect everything. The last thing you want to do is take delivery of your farm and deploy it and not be able to grow it. I mean, get a stop work order or have somebody come in and say, you can't occupy this space anymore. So to me, understanding the zoning, communicating with the city what you're trying to do, and really work that process effectively. You do a really good job of communicating the benefits of this program to your municipal leaders. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly
0: conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Durand. Vertical Farming Podcast, season eight bonus episode. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. Thank you so much for all the support you've provided over the years. If you are a regular listener, then I really, truly appreciate all the support, all the comments, all the feedback, all the in-person hugs for the listeners I've met at conferences. I really am vibing high off the response to the show. And I really appreciate all the support. If this is your first time listening, then I really appreciate you coming to this show because I imagine you're looking for conversations with some fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, and you are in the right place if that's the case. This is a special bonus episode as we get ready for season eight. What I did was actually look back in the archives for one of the most popular episodes of all time on the show. And it was a tough choice because there were definitely several that fell into that category. The one we're going to go with today is a conversation with Michael Cicienza. Interestingly enough, we just published episode 104, and this was exactly the halfway mark way back in season four, episode 52. This was a very popular episode, and I think part of it was the topic that was covered. The episode was titled The Deal and PR Blueprint for Launching Successful Vertical Farm Projects. And I think in line with what's been happening recently in the news with the closings, specifically with Farms and App Harvest. It's no surprise that folks are on edge about upcoming plans for projects, existing projects, and this is both the farming community and the investor community as well. So it felt like the right topic to revisit. And I know you're going to get a lot of value out of this episode with Michael. As I mentioned, we're getting ready for season nine. We are actively looking for sponsorships for the show. So if you and or your company feels like this would be a fit for your marketing plan, please reach out harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We'd love to partner with you and happy to make connections to past sponsors who have had really good experiences partnering with us as well. So if that's something that you're interested in, let me know and reach out. Just a little preview in case you haven't had a chance to listen to this and are new to the podcast. Michael is gonna be speaking about the intricacies of developing container farms, everything from getting zoning approval from the local and city government to what he looks for when building a project and a team. He's highly mission focused and he wants to leave a legacy of making the world a better place or at least trying to, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. He talks about his involvement with the From Mary With Love project and his belief that the education about the vertical farming industry comes through empowerment. Lots here to take away and I know you'll enjoy it. If you've been enjoying any of these episodes past present or even a future one leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash vfp i'd love to read yours out next i don't think i read one of the recent ones that came through out it's from lita kokini and she writes the vertical farming podcast has been an absolute delight to listen to from the moment i tuned in i was captivated by harry's passion for vertical farming and the incredible stories shared by industry experts and pioneers in every episode i learned something new and it leaves me eager to learn more the Vertical Farming Podcast feels like a journey and I can't recommend it enough. Thank you so much, Lita, for those kind words. We're excited to be partnering with Lita and her team on the upcoming Horty Next conference coming up in Abu Dhabi. So expect to hear more in future episodes about that. Okay, before we get into this jam-packed and informative conversation with Michael, here are a few words from the folks that support this show. I'm excited to introduce our latest sponsor, Ounce of Hope, an aquaponics cannabis company. Ounce of Hope utilizes aquaponics to cultivate cannabis and seafood livestock. They also perform their own extraction and product formulation in the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. While managing 5,000 gallons of koi and tilapia, Ounce of Hope's system allows for abundant production of fish poop nutrients, which you can now buy online. This product is concentrated plant food for any size garden. Fish poop is free of emulsions, bad smells and won't burn your plants. Ounce of Hope is giving Vertical Farming podcast listeners 50% off their first order. So swim on over to ounceofhope.com to experience the aquaponic side of cannabis and use promo code FISHPOOP. How fun is that? Mark your calendars for the CEA Summit East in Danville, Virginia, from September 19th to the 20th, 2023. This two-day event, co-hosted by Indoor AgCon and the Virginia Tech IALR Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Center, brings businesses and academia together to help you grow your business. Immerse yourself in a full lineup of research showcases, panel discussions, and keynotes featuring top experts, grower operators, and other thought leaders. Explore the latest CEA innovations from tabletop exhibitors. Enjoy quality networking opportunities. Don't miss this unique opportunity to attend a conference at a research facility where you can get a firsthand look at cutting-edge research projects happening right now and explore ideas for collaboration with Virginia Tech and IALR researchers as well. Vertical Farming Podcast listeners can save 10% off the standard passes with code VFP. Visit ceasummit.com for more details and to register. So Michael Sikensia, founder and CEO of Fat Village Enterprises, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Harry.
0: Where's home for you now? As we as we connect today,
1: home now is Fort Lauderdale, Florida.
0: Okay, and were you born, raised there, moved there, relocated?
1: No, I'm a country boy from Brooklyn,
0: okay. New York. <laughs> okay, what part of Brooklyn?
1: Originally from the Red Hook section of Brooklyn.
0: Okay, I grew up in Yonkers, uh, so and I've okay, and so New you're York, yeah, very familiar with New York. I've lived in uh, East Village, Williamsburg, and uh, Upper East Side, so very familiar with uh, the city. All good,
1: all good neighborhoods, but they're yeah. completely different from when I was growing up. Yeah. What are some fond memories of growing up in Red Hook? My dad was a lifeguard and a, a competitive swimmer in the Red Hook pools. And mm. uh, my fondest memories are playing softball in uh, Coffee Park off of Van Brunt Street in, in mm. that area. And I still have family that live in the Hook and I visit them occasionally when I'm in New York. I said I visited them last I was there for the blizzard. Unfortunately, oh, okay. I, didn't, I didn't plan that to happen, <laughs> but, uh, I go back to New York as often as I can. Obviously I still have family there, but yeah. I try to get back. To, I don't want to lose my tan. So I get back as fast <laughs> as I can.
0: The whole point is to go, is to you, I'm assuming you're in Florida to escape the winter. And so you actually managed to make it back for the winter there. So
1: I came to Florida 17 years ago for a work opportunity. And, uh, I loved it and I, there's no getting me back. Although I travel to the snow often, my projects take me to places generally where it's cold. So okay. I try to go there the least amount of time as possible.
0: And when you, can you talk a little bit for folks that may not be familiar with the projects that you're working on, a little bit of your background and, and we'll, no need to do the long version, but we'll, we'll get caught up in, in, in as it relates to what we're talking about on this show.
1: So I'm generally a person who had no experience in farming whatsoever five years ago, primarily a real estate background. And the pandemic about four years ago, I discovered that the the food space was a space that needed a different approach. So, having owned and operated restaurants in my past, I saw that that was an area that I wanted to get back to, and I saw that my real estate experience would play into that because I could I knew how to put together deal structure, and I felt that farming and urban farming in particular had a tremendous opportunity with the right deal structure, and that's how I got into it. And I met a group of fellows who. Started Freight Farms mm-hmm. out in Boston and I visited there. And once I visited that and walked through a shipping container set up to do a farm, it was the ultimate science project for me and it had me hooked. And at that point, I said, This is the space I want to be in. This is the future of farming. Mm-hmm. And that's been my primary focus since then. So the projects that I do are primarily based on really the hyper of food and procurement, production delivery on a hyper local level, because I think that localization is the key to taking back our food system.
0: What was it about the space that attracted you to, and you mentioned you did have the, the real estate background, but was it something that you were looking into studying or just what you were seeing was happening around you at the time?
1: Land is the biggest issue in, you know, for food. And there's not, there's a lot of underutilized space in inner cities. And I saw inner city warehousing and industrial space as an opportunity if we could get into the right technology and we could get to you know commercialized production and commercialized yield then that space would be ideally suited. And I also saw it from a capital perspective because the capital perspective is the key. You know you can do good work if you have a checkbook with money in it. And I looked at the hydroponic space and said it's really a play on storage. You know public storage facilities and the way those deals are structured are ideally suited for modular containerized hydroponic space in an urban setting. And that's how I, that was the connection for me.
0: Did you start to connect with folks that were in the space or anyone in the industry at the time? Or how were you educating yourself?
1: I met a fellow up in Canada who had a company called Locally Grown Salads. And uh, we started talking. I couldn't make a deal with him because his technology was just too expensive for me. But he had this modularized concept of hydroponics in grow units, much like freight farms had. Only his concept was to put them in, you know, 10 to 20 of them in a building, build a clean package room in the facility, and then go out and do this. What happened is back in 2017 or 18, I'm not exactly sure the exact year, but when the Trump administration changed the tax code and brought in this whole concept of Opportunity Zone uh, for tax deferment, that changed the space dramatically and i saw that as a way of attracting dollars into the space and to me that was critical to making this work
0: given your background in real estate how do you think about the the viability do you think about what are the conditions you're looking for in a project when you decide to take something on like this you know being new in the space do you look at things like long-term viability profitability implementation you know things about you know thoughts about building
1: the team because i'm not a farmer quote unquote, right? The first thing I'm looking for, my whole concept is there are many really well-run not-for-profits who have funding sources, who have boots on the ground infrastructure in the community. And what they really lack is programming. So I look at hydroponic farming as a programming component. And I search for inner city nonprofits who need programming, who don't have the ability to Go out there and put all the necessary components together, don't have the expertise to put the, th- the deal structure together. And then I go out there and I try to team up with them. So the first thing I'm looking for is an, a nonprofit that has boots on the ground in a particular area. The second thing that I look for is is it based in a designated opportunity zone? Because that's how I know we're going to get the money that we need. And then I start to look at the enterprise aspect of it. Is there a need? What's the demographic? are we going to be able to get this out to you know, X number of people and derive a return on that investment over a five-year period of time? Because that's usually the criteria for an opportunity zone investment. So when we put all of those things together, there are tremendous opportunities. It's wide open field.
0: When you look at a, the a not-for-profit team, I'm curious what specifically you're looking for in the team. Is it the makeup, their experience, their success with previous projects? What's the criteria just dive in specifically in that aspect of it that you look for?
1: I look primarily to operations that are small in nature, because they tend to be less centralized. And I think centralization is the enemy, actually, of all of the things that we're trying to do. I want a group of people that are more hands-on, small team, that is really looking to get into a project and really make this their signature project. And food today, because of the pandemic, has become you know a, a very important aspect of these discussions. And there isn't a community that, that I talk to that doesn't want a food-growing component to what they're trying to do. And that's what's going on here. So to me, I'm looking for a small team, a team that's the decision-making process is more streamlined, and a team that needs what I offer. And what I'm essentially offering is, and I hate to use this, no pun intended, but you know, a project in a box, a farm in a box, you know, where it's, we can deliver it, deploy it quickly and get the crop growing that's really what this is all about
0: how much of it is related to you know for lack of a better term like personality of the founders or the founding team are there certain like traits or characteristics when you start these initial discussions with some of these these founders that you're looking for
1: you know the BIPOC community has been particularly affected by food sovereignty issues and food injustice issues and i'm looking for people who have a personal experience and have a, a long-term background in the neighborhood. So the reason I picked the Wilson brothers are a perfect example who run the From Mary With Love organization in Chicago. Their brother was a, one of the top rated basketball players in the country back in the eighties, a fellow by the name of Ben Wilson, Benji Wilson. This is, he was the Michael Jordan before there was a Michael Jordan, believe it or not. And he was tragically killed. He was tragically killed in a, from a gun incident. And when I started to talk to the Wilson brothers, I got a feeling that they really cared because their mother had instilled upon them, Mary Wilson, the late Mary Wilson. She became a community activist. She was very much involved in the community after the death of her son. And that was her legacy. And they wanted to continue that legacy. And the legacy revolved around food. Mary came from Mississippi. Her family you know, picked cotton and food. And the Wilson brothers related to that. Tony Wilson, the director, had a background of urban farming and starting some urban farms in Chicago. And it was a natural fit. There was a passion there. And that shared passion was enable us to really pull off the the first phase of the project. As you know, these things are not a straight line. There were ups and downs. You think you have enough money, then the money is not there. I can't tell you the number of false thoughts that we had with that project over the last year and a half. And finally, to be able to get our box delivered was a big, big moment. And I have to say, we would never have pulled that off if it wasn't for a benefactor that came to, you know, that made that happen. A company called Synergistic Solutions, they put up all of the money and uh, they made it happen for us. So, passion, stick to itness. We're going to make this work no matter what the obstacle is. That's very important in any entrepreneurial venture.
0: Yeah, that's one of the projects that we first connected on the From Mary with Love project. And so, I'm wondering now looking back, because that project, since it's been started and the work that you guys, your team has put in, it's completed. Have you moved on from that? Are you still working with them?
1: We, it's, our role is is finished. Our sure. role was to, our role was essentially to put the deal structure together. In that particular location, we had to help rewrite the zoning code, and that's another issue. That's a big issue when you're talking yeah. about these things because the zoning doesn't allow for these permanent shipping containers to be deployed. We had to help draft a rewrite of a code, which is now working its way through that that municipality's uh, ordinance process. But our goal was to get the box delivered, get the infrastructure necessary so that they could plant the crop, train their boots on the ground project manager, and then liaison between them and freight farms to get to where we are. So today they are in the process of planting their first crop.
0: Looking back at that project, Michael, if you were to think about tackling something of that same size with that same type of team in that same, with the same type of zoning challenges, is there anything you would do differently?
1: Absolutely. I would go public much sooner get more community support much sooner in the process and line up the distribution of the end product much sooner in the process because you have to be able to sell this stuff as soon as it's ready to be harvested. So not having those things in place made it much more difficult to put the money in place to get the deal done. So it was a huge learning curve there.
0: At what point did you start working with the team at Freight Farms? And I know they've got some, you know they provide a lot of help with their projects as well. So what type of relationship were you building with them?
1: Let me just say, the relationship with Frey Farms has been a blessing. They've been extremely helpful to me many times. They should have pulled the plug and said, "Sorry, we're going to sell the box to somebody else." They didn't. They hung in with in, in there with us, and uh, they're still helping out in terms of technical expertise and whatnot. But I met Frey Farms about three years ago, and I originally signed the contract to buy these boxes. Uh, we, it's a two box deal, but we only took delivery of one. We just couldn't come up with enough money to do both of them. A, about thirteen months ago, fourteen months ago. And so we—it was a long process, and it took quite a bit of time. We lost our first location. We had to go find another location. Just the typical startup problems that that one you know encounters. But uh, they've been extremely helpful. They helped us uh, in the process of the business plan, all the way from beginning to to where we sit today. Absolutely a pleasure to work with.
0: It's interesting you talked about the zoning issues because I think a lot of first-time farmers, first-time container farmers, they may not think about those things because they think, well, if I have access to land or if I have someplace I can put the box on, then that's all I need, and then I can figure out. And there's a lot of moving parts: is you know, planting the crop, harvesting it, and then the marketing and distributing it, which I think a lot of first-time founders may not be thinking of. But the zoning issues is, is interesting. I'm wondering. How you think about those issues going forward, and any advice for folks that are looking to to work in in this space specifically with Cortana farms? Granted, the bigger you know box factories, you know they're they've got a whole team that handles all that zoning for them. But I think for like the one off folks, it'd be helpful to think about those things, or maybe think about questions they should be asking themselves when it comes to
1: zoning. Absolutely, because that's it can be a very expensive proposition if you don't have a person on your team that is used to doing zoning work. I happen to have that experience simply because of my real estate background. I've I've been in front of city councils and planning boards and zoning commissions, and it's part of what I do. But it's an extremely important aspect. The benefit of, of a freight farm or a containerized farming scenario, modularized, if you would, is that it's low cost, quick deployment. But the thing that will stop the deployment is if the zoning doesn't line up with where you're putting this farm. So if the site doesn't have an urban farming that you know, in the zoning code, your box is only good for 30 days and then the, the city is going to come and tell you to move that box. So what do mm. you do then, right? So yeah. attacking that and making sure that the city has, that there's a variance process, whatever that process is, get it started soon, sooner rather than later and deal with that issue because that issue will affect everything. The last thing you want to do is take delivery of your farm and deploy it and not be able to grow it. I mean, get a stop work order or have somebody come in and, and say, you, you can't occupy this space anymore. So to me, understanding the zoning, communicating with the city, what you're trying to do. For instance, in the project in Oak Forest, we hired an architect to conceptualize what this would look like, draw it. We wrote a really good narrative to this, and we expressed that to the community development agency so that they would be a, our liaison to the different city commissions and boards and really work that process effectively, do a really good job of communicating the benefits of this program to your municipal uh, leaders. And then once they see those benefits, they jump on board. There isn't a community that doesn't want this, right? They all want this. And if you're a young person or a, a new entrepreneur in this space, you're gonna get help, but you gotta know how to ask for it. You gotta know what to do. You have to follow the rule. You can't just go in there and say, you know, we're just going to put it there and they're going to, it's not, if we build it, they'll love it. It doesn't usually work that way.
0: Right. What's helpful guidance for for first-time founders as they think through the community aspect of it, because you did mention earlier, this idea of community support, getting the buy-in from the community, probably some education, because if they've never had access to this sort of fresh, you know, produce locally, you know, you know, I, I, you know, grew up in, like I uh, mentioned earlier in Yonkers, I've lived in New York city. So this idea of food deserts is something, you know, that, that's it's an idea that's, I'm very familiar with and just, you know, people who associate or may not even have access to anything fresh, you know, growing up, they just have the bodega <laughs> on the corner. So right. I'm, I'm curious, you know, right. how, how you think about the challenges of educating the community on the benefits of
1: something of a project like this. I approach it from an empowerment perspective. I say, you know, you, Many community leaders talk the talk Sunday morning, Monday morning, and then there's no further talk the rest of the week. So it's an empowerment play. And especially in inner city, there are three major components to inner city poverty, lack of affordable housing, lack of job opportunity, and then health, lack of quality health. Well, you can't have any of those things if you don't start with a good diet. So if you take a generation of people and continue to shove pour food product into them, you're going to get the next reaction to that is lifelong disease, more ailment, more sickness, more of everything. It compounds everything. So we look at it from the perspective of empowerment. So when I talk to community leaders, I say, if you want to attack these problems, you have to start with a holistic mentality, and then you have to attack it at its core. You start with these four components, right, that I just mentioned, and food is one of them. So food is easy. Food is easy. You can, you get a person, get a young person in their 18, 19 years old and get them to grow, you know, a tomato or get them to grow some lettuce. They're hooked. And the beautiful thing about hydroponics is it really is the ultimate science project. You know, when you can do that and it, and you see this thing growing and the, Harry, the first time I walked into a box and with the lights, you know, and I was, it was like, this is it for me. I yeah. was hooked. Yeah. So I try to show, and again, It's been very helpful because we have some great video that comes out of Freight Farms. We've been able, you know, there's good marketing material. They have a track record of of working with nonprofits and others in the community. So we take all that, package it together. And when we make the presentation, there isn't a person in the room that isn't shaking their head saying, how do we get to become a part of that?
0: Yeah, so interesting, especially folks that have grown up in the city and, you know, they're only interactions have and thinking about farms has been the typical traditional, you know, head out upstate, you know, New right. York or get out to, you know, somewhere outside of the, the city. And you, it's their first experience with with dirt, with cows, <laughs> with chickens. And it's a, it's a bit of a shock. And, and I think we're so disconnected from understanding where our food comes from. And to your, to your point, that experience that you had is something that is, what's exciting for me is, is that that's a feeling that can be replicated. And I'm wondering as you know, the from Mary with Love project came online, if you started to see some of that from the community members, you know, as people w- were connecting with the project and people that may not have have had this type of experience before, if, if you got to see some of that.
1: So the morning the box was delivered to the site, you know, I, I'm a big believer in good PR and I'm a believer that you make things happen with good public relations and good communications. So you know, we had the video crew out there and we had the crane come in because we had to do a crane placement of the box. And uh, it was a showstopper. Everyone wanted to be out there. Everybody wanted to take a picture. We bought a used uh, unit from Free Farms and it happened to have a logo on the side that said, this is a farm. And it had a picture of that bucolic farm scene yeah, that yeah. you're describing. And people were just amazed. Everybody wanted to go in the box. At this, we delivered the box in early October. And for Thanksgiving, we did a turkey, fund, a turkey giveaway, and we brought in a lot of the local food banks to basically introduce ourselves to what was going to go on there and, and the whole food concept. People just wanted to walk inside that thing. And that's the buy-in that you want, because you'll get city governments to do pretty much anything you want them to do if there's buy-in from the community. If, there's, if the community says, I don't want that ugly box sitting out in front of yeah. my, you know, in the parking lot, then no matter what you do, you're never going to get that buy-in. But community awareness, being a good neighbor, showing people that you're going to employ people in the community, especially disadvantaged people. Yeah, this is This is, you know, what more could you ask for? Really at a grassroots level, there's nothing like growing food. There's nothing like helping someone eat. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm a big believer in the more local you can make that and maintain that the better off you're, you're going to be.
0: Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. So I'm wondering what connection you maintain with the Mary with Love team. Now that the project is up and running, I imagine it, it presents a whole new set of challenges for them because you know, you've, you've obviously articulated what was needed to get to where they are now. And I'm just curious as they move forward, because as, as new farmers think about these, you know, there's phases as to how these things happen. So I'm wondering uh, to what extent you've been in contact with them and, and how they think about what, what they should be focused on going forward.
1: So I'm playing more of a consulting role at now, and I try to defer all the technical aspects of the farm to the tech team at Freight Farms. They're the ones that are best geared uh, to deal with those issues, and there are many because when you're starting these things up, you have connectivity issues, you have timing issues. There are all kinds of technical questions relative to the hydroponic process, which are unique to Freight Farms to a certain extent. I and mean, Freight Farms has a you know farmhand app which allows for remote monitoring, which is a beautiful thing. So my role is more of helping them now to look at the bigger picture, interact with state and government agencies, talk about different other uh, relationships with food banks that they might be able to deal, uh, make arrangements with, opportunities with drug rehab centers and transitional programs for job training, which I think is a huge, huge component here that is yet untapped. Um, And it's it's those things it's developing the big picture the longer term where are we going to be three or four harvests later this whole concept of prepackaging the concept of cuisine concepts you know we started a company down here with a young entrepreneur called badass cuisine we helped seed that with the idea of gourmet wholesome gourmet you know that can be delivered using good fresh products so these are all the offshoots that come with that empowerment process. And I always circle back to that. This is not only a food generation uh, process and a food production, pr- production process, but it's also a job creation, it's a job sure. training, it's an educational component. And these are all the things that we need to change the paradigm about food. And the sooner we start that, if we get that with younger people, and younger people anticipate, you know, if, a, if a young people grow up with this education, They'll want that and they'll demand that from the, the business sector. We just haven't had that. In my generation, we went to the store and we bought our food in the supermarket. That's all we knew about food. Yeah. Period.
0: So having the experience with From Mary With Love and understanding what worked and what didn't, where did you go next and how did you think about you know, what were the characteristics you're looking for in the next project?
1: So the project in Buffalo is 10 acres in an opportunity zone with an existing facility that's underutilized. And what we're doing there is we're trying to acquire, it happened to be an entity that went through a bankruptcy. So we're dealing with the trustee and the bankruptcy process up there. In that situation, we are looking at it at a, by a factor of 10. So not one box, but 10 boxes. And it's a whole different return on investment. It's a whole different business model there. It's more of, all right, what are we going to grow How can we get that out into the marketplace as a prepackaged salad, prepackaged whatever, and begin those distribution channels? It's also very close to several universities. So we're also looking at a company called Bike Technology with their smart vending machines. And how do we service those in that whole northwestern section of New York? And how do we deploy those machines? Because it's distribution, right? Growing is one aspect, but the business model has to bring that return. and has to bring the capital in. The way we do that is by getting the distribution channels established. So by owning your distribution, not being reliant upon restaurateurs or cafeteria or food service people, by owning your distribution, now you're starting to get into the, into the how do we monetize? What's the revenue model here? And that's what I'm doing in, in Buffalo. It's a different play. Utilizing the opportunity zone enterprise aspect. That's an underutilized aspect of this whole conversation of capital many people who are in the opportunity zone space have the the low lying fruit has been picked. You know, we do a hotel and we do multifamily and that's, that's where you see most of the investment. The enterprise aspect is where the future is. So if you, if you set up an an entity that's going to do business in an opportunity zone, you get the same benefits as if you're doing the real estate. So there's much more reach that way. And that's why we picked that site. It met all the criteria. We have an existing building. We don't, The retrofit costs are not as great as if we were building a a new structure and we can house 10 freight farm containerized units in the facility and then have room for a clean package room, a clean packaging facility. And that's that's the goal there.
0: I was going to ask you if you were working with freight farms, and I guess you're you're happy with the relationship that you built up with them and and so you like their model for, especially going from one to 10. I'm wondering if there's any difference in, in that thinking process.
1: There is. The biggest problem with freight farms is that they've... They're building, they're so busy that the yeah. time to get a box is lengthy. Yeah. That's the biggest issue. But when you look at the, I'm a big believer that, you know, in this space, go with the guys that have the proven track record and do what you do best and let the other people provide the hardware, which is what they do best. Yeah. I've looked at a lot of different people, a lot of different manufacturing. I mean, someone would say, why can't you just re, you know, hire somebody to re engineer or reverse engineer what they do? And I'm like, we don't have time for that. We have a house that's on fire. We need to put the fire out. So I'll go with the proven technology always. And then I'll figure out how to make that work. And that's why I like the that team there. And I have to tell you, this was not a, you know, a simple deployment with no issues. Having that relationship and having the feedback, that's what allows you to sleep at night.
0: Is that a project that you can speak publicly about? Or is that still in the beginning, early stages?
1: It's very early. We're set to close on the property in, in the coming weeks. Yeah. And then once that occurs, everybody there thinks we're doing some kind of cannabis play because can, you know, New York just legalized the cannabis. Oh, that's and, right. uh, you have a, a lot of people in the cannabis industry making big moves and especially in a hydroponic space, yeah. but it's not, it's a purely a foods play, but in the coming weeks, we'll go public, but what we're going to do there. And uh, we're just waiting for the transaction to close before we do that.
0: And obviously when you are working at a project at that scale, did you bring in additional partners to work with you on that as well?
1: Yes. So the primary issue here is the initial capital raise. Yeah. So we're using skilled money people who know how to put opportunity zone money together because that's a component. My job there is to be the, you know, the, the ringleader, again, the circus ringleader, just keeping all of the component parts moving in the right direction, deal structure. As far as the on-the-ground farmers, okay, we're interviewing people and the response has been phenomenal. Hmm. That I can tell you, I've got so many people that are interested in this project and wanting to be a part of this project that it's very exciting. So it's a, it's a good time.
0: I'm curious as you start that, there's again, so many moving parts and, and you've 10X the scale of what you did with, from Mary flow. And, and obviously I imagine there was a lot of lessons learned in what you should do, what you could do better in different zoning challenges. And so I'm curious because of your background, when you start to structure these types of deals and you look for partners to work with. I imagine that these are investors that have done previous deals in other industries. How much of it is an education process into what's happening within vertical farming, the potential potential risks as well? How do you think about those things in terms of figuring out who would be a best fit for you to work with from an investment perspective?
1: So early on, I saw that the public storage space type of investor would be ideal for this situation. And I'll give you the reasons why for that, without getting too technical into the the deal structure. You could theoretically make each individual container its own investment vehicle housed Mm -hmm. under one management structure in one centralized location, right? So from a deal structure perspective, it's beautiful. You can pretty much do a good pro forma on what the revenue model is from that one container, and you just multiply that out, right? So I visited a farm in Paraguay doing this on a you know on a regular farm, yeah. a typical farm situation. And I said, okay, that's the model. We have a better model because we don't have the environmental risk and the climate risk associated with growing. So if you're an investor and you want to be in a non-sexy space, this is the ideal space. There's nothing sexy about this. It's just we're going to grow lettuce. Lettuce sells for X dollars a pound. There's so many pounds of lettuce that are eaten every month. Got it? You know, it's not sexy, but just the numbers work, right? So you can replicate. If you can do it once, you can do it a hundred times. It's just a, then it's just a management issue, and uh, my job is to find the right managers. You know, I'm not that manager. My job yeah. is to find that right now. Man- my job is to build teams and give those teams what they need to succeed. And usually that means giving them a good deal structure, giving them enough working capital to get through the initial stages. And that's what makes any good enterprise work. And I think that's part of the problem with, with food in general, is that when we start to move it into the nonprofit se- sector, and we, we have to remember that social enterprise is still an enterprise. You know, and the key word there is enterprise. Yeah. And we, seem, we tend to forget that. These have to be self-sustaining. Otherwise, they will fail. And the cannabis industry is a good corollary because you look at the valuations that were given to cannabis companies, you know, you, you know, five years ago. And especially in Canada, and look at the number of bankruptcies because the, the valuations and the performance, they just didn't have any sense of reality to them when you started to look at the operation. And we're seeing it now in the California market where we have mm-hmm. a depressed market for pot, you know, which is they used to own the industry. So then you look at what's going on in these industries, you can try to show the corollary to what goes on in food. And you pay attention to those things and you can track them and you can say, okay, these are the pitfalls we need to avoid here from a deal perspective. So I'm not in this for the deal. I'm in this because I want to bring food to the community. And I think that there's probably never been a better time to marry good deal structure with delivery of food and production of food. We need it now more than ever. It really is you know, the time to own our own food again. I really believe that.
0: What do you think, Michael, has changed in you in terms of like why you feel like this is something that's important? So, you know, the, the short version of
1: that question is why you and why now? I've been a guy that's been in my own business since I was 20 years old. I'm 62 now. I have to tell you that I've done a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. I've been all around and up and down. And you'll hear this from grandparents all the time. I had grandkids and I started to say, well, you know, what's what kind of world? It sounds cliche, you know, yeah. I, you know but it really isn't. It, it rang home to me. I and mean, what, what are we doing here? And then the pandemic came. And when the pandemic came, and I started to see food shortages, which have not gone away, probably will get worse. I really started to understand that you know, eating is not we can't take that for granted, can't take food for granted. And here we are now, so I feel an obligation to use whatever skill I have and use it to do something that's good, instead of just to do make money because making money is not. That's the other issue here, Harry, and that is that the whole concept of what is growth and what is capital. Is changing and it's good. It's good that it's changing. This is a new kind of growth capital, pun intended. (laughs)
0: Right? How much of it has been an education process for you in terms of how you describe this to your your colleagues, people you've grown up with, people you've done business with in the past? You know, they are some of them like saying, like, Michael, what what are you doing now?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. They think I'm crazy. So it, I didn't know that I could do this. I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't a believer in this hydroponic thing. So I decided to start growing some hydroponic vegetables on my balcony in my apartment here in downtown Fort Lauderdale just okay. to see if it worked. Sure. Sure. And then posting pictures on Facebook today, and people would say, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I'm growing this stuff hydroponically. And I come, my family is a family of engineers. So they're, they're technical walks, you know? And, uh, then they started to say, Hey, what about this? And what about that? And what kind of, what's your nutrients? And, and I'm like, Once I got that buy in, I said, you know what, this thing is, this thing works. So yeah, it's been a big education process. But the more I talk to people about this, the more I hear them really understanding that we got to do something with our food system, it's not working. And that's a good thing. And I think, you know, educating people and pointing something out to people that should be obvious. It wasn't obvious for me. Once I got that, the light bulb went off. And I said, Hey, this is something good. Let's try to make a difference here. And that's what it comes about. You're doing that with your show. You're educating people. Even people that are seasoned veterans in vertical farming. You know, this yeah. is a space that's changing. Look at light technology, how much yeah. that's changed in the last three years. Yeah. The biggest thing that I would get from people, well, oh, the electrical costs will be so high. It's not cost effective. And look at how that's changed in three years time. So this is an exciting time to be in this space. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled to be a part of it frankly.
0: Have you had connections with other folks in the industry? And how do you think about you know, conferences, marketing, networking, as it relates to what you're working on?
1: I have to be honest with you. My experience in that has been people are very close, not all, yeah. but the people that I have been talking to are very protective. Companies and entrepreneurs that I've been talking to are very protective of their space. And I can understand that being an entrepreneur and in a competitive world but this is about decent. If we're going to take this and make this work as a country and as a world, frankly, we really have to be an open source scenario. We have to get less, we have to be hyper local. We have to educate people. We have to share and collaborate as much as possible. That teamwork really does work in this arena. And the more we do that, and the more we talk about it, and the more we find ways to get this out to people, the better we'll be in three or four years. But this has to happen now. We don't have 50 years to make this work. We have to do this in a hurry. And it can be done. Yeah, I agree. I and mean, how many parking garages are there that you go <laughs> and that nobody ever parks their car on the top floor of a parking garage, right? Well, there's, you know, a hundred acres.
0: That's true. It's interesting because when you think about, I'm just educating myself. I'm bringing my listeners along the journey with me because there's a lot that I don't know, but I'm I, I always know that, I'm learning as my listeners are learning, and I hopefully am asking the questions that my listeners would want to ask as they're, as they're discovering all the different ways you can get involved in this industry. What's funny is that I used to work at E-Trade and one of my coworkers there, a guy named Ben, he, he left and this was in tw- 2005, six, he's like, I'm going to go start a rooftop farm in Brooklyn. <laughs> and everybody was kind of like laughing, just like, what are you doing? That's kind of weird. And he was a bit of a, an eclectic kind of, uh, kind of guy. And, and you know, fast forward he runs i think it's i forgot the name of the company but it's brooklyn farms it's a rooftop farm in brooklyn and i've been meaning to circle back with him but sometimes you know some people are ahead of the curve and they're you know they're forward thinkers and it's they have to wait for everyone else to catch up with with them and this idea of like available space like in, in big cities it's nothing new and all this unused real estate you know a lot of companies are in for a bit of a shock you know because workers have had a taste of remote working you know they're not really prepared to go back into offices. So now what do you do with all this space? And I think to your point, and especially for people that have grown up in and around big cities, I think we're going to have to rethink what can be done on, from a small scale to a big scale to make the most of that uh, for the benefit of the community.
1: I agree with you hundred percent. I think it's the commercial. I listen to every commercial real estate seminar and webinar that's out there. And I can tell you that no one, top guys in the industry have any idea what's going to happen in the commercial office space it's totally in flux and it, it represents an opportunity and but what happens harry is you know as you get older you get lazier and you're not more you're not as innovative as you used to be that's the the illness that takes over as you age right i've always tried to be a year ahead of the new york times I, and my whole career was always about if i can be a year ahead of the new york times i'm going to be doing something right well the New York Times is writing stories all day long now about this. So, yeah, yeah. And the people that move money need to find a return on that money. So I'm not a big believer in centralized movements. I think that's a problem. And we could just go from one centralized problem to another if we're not careful. But this role of smaller producers tying into a network is, gives you that same kind of scalability. I got involved uh, right around pandemic with a group called uh, Co-op Gardens, and they've got you know three thousand people, 157 seed hubs, you know, all decentralized, non-hierarchical. Just a beautiful group of people doing good things. Well, that's how this works. And the managers that we are, the ones that have good managerial skills, we really want to make a difference. Our job is to help promote that, and that's really what this is for me. It's a mission. I'm on a mission. Okay. And that's how I describe it to my kids. You know, dad, what are you doing? You should be thinking about retiring. And I'm like, you know, I don't want to retire. I want to keep going.
0: Yeah. I think people have a new understanding of of how we can take care of ourselves to live longer and healthier lives. And because we're doing that, you know, we're changing what we think is possible in our lifetimes. And, you know, I remember it's so funny because I'm a child of the 80s, I'm 51. I remember watching that show. 30 something in the and i was like well those guys are old <laughs> and it's right you think how, how funny that is but now i mean i feel like like a 30 something now and i feel like i think about the potential of like living longer healthier lives and from a health perspective that's great but then from a to your point mission perspective you know what you could typically get done you know people were thinking 60s is like okay retirement age you know, find a good rocking chair. And, and I think I'm good <laughs> now, you know, to, your, to what you're doing, you're just like, what's the next project? How can I, you know, leave an impact? And I'm, I'm wondering if you think about the term legacy at all.
1: I do, you know, I'm a lucky guy. I have a parents who my father was a world-renowned electrical engineer doing really, you know, great stuff. And he's still to this day, he's 83 and he's still working on state-of-the-art stuff uh, that, you know, is just amazing at 83. So age is just a number it's a state of mind if your mind is if you have the blessing of having a good mind and you you know god gives you that you know you can do great things if you choose to do that you can also do bad things you know i'm i'm no saint i've done a lot of bad things i like to think that i've changed and i try to do i try to make sure that i'm doing things from the right perspective and that's how i start my day i look at my day and i i see my day as what's the highest and best vision of me and then i try to put that out and that's how i start each day some days i win and I think I do a good job and some days I fail, but at least I'll try.
0: That's helpful. Well, uh, I'm glad we connected. I, I think it speaks to s- somewhat of your your marketing chops. And you mentioned like in, with that first project, this, this always thinking from a PR perspective. I'm wondering if, if that's something you learned along the way as well. Like, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, right? You got to talk about the projects if you want you people to, to hear to, about them.
1: You have to self-promote. You know? yeah. So some people will say that's arrogance. Some people will say that's ego. Some people will say that's narcissism. I've never met a a successful entrepreneur that there wasn't a bit of a narcissist. You have to self-promote. If you're not going to promote yourself, who is, right? So you got to get out there. You got to talk about your things. You got to, you're going to fail. You know, I fail all the time. There's, you know, that saying, if you want to succeed, double your failure rate. Well, I probably (laughs) quadrupled my failure rate, but uh, that's part of the process. And is there a legacy to that? I want my grandkids to say, my grandfather tried, he tried to make a difference. That's it. He may not have been successful, but at least he didn't sit around and complain about it.
0: Makes sense. Well, I appreciate you taking that initiative and reaching out. And you know, we, had, we had some technical difficulties. So uh, it feels like we got to work, work through those, but we made it happen. and That's what's important. We prevailed. Yeah.
1: It wasn't a straight line.
0: <laughs> yeah. So hopefully you'll stay in contact with us and, and keep us updated on the project. And we'll let you know. And we, we want to share the, the news of, of what's been happening and, and how that's progressing.
1: I certainly will. Thank you for the time. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today.
0: Where's the best place for folks to get connected with you if they want to learn more about what you're working on or maybe you know, even like look for opportunities to partner with you on future projects?
1: The best way to reach Val to me is on LinkedIn. Michael Sakenzia. just look me. I'm, I mean, yeah, everybody cool. finds me on LinkedIn yep. and uh, you'll see all the projects that we're involved in. I always put posts up as much as I can. Facebook. I do a lot on Facebook. i okay. Michael Sakenzia. so you can find okay. me there. Okay.
0: Yes. Make sure you get those links to us. We'll put them in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you can take those, look for those in the show notes and and connect with Michael. Again, Michael, appreciate connecting with a fellow New Yorker. It's always fun. (laughs) And uh, likewise, best
1: of luck with your future projects. Thank you, Harry. Have a great day. Okay.
0: Thanks again to Michael for sharing his valuable insights. This was a fantastic replay of episode 52. And if past performance was any indication, there's going to be a whole new wave of folks that are going to get value from this as well. So remember, if you are interested in learning more and working with Michael, please make sure to reach out to him as well or reach out to me and we can get you connected. Don't forget to leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And I'll be sure to read that out on a future episode as I did at the beginning of this episode. Thanks again to Lita for leaving her review. As we wrap up season eight, I want to give a special thanks to our title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. And if you do, make sure you let them know that you heard about it on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at Cultivated.com and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out that last E. Podcast production marketing provided by Fullcast. Head on over to Fullcast.co to watch my free video, The Five Key Pillars of a Successful Podcast That Every Business Owner Needs to Know Prior to Launching. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, we are getting ready for Season 9 and we still have sponsorship opportunities available Reach out to me directly, Harry at Vertical for more details. Really excited for the season nine lineup. Just to give you a sneak peek of what's coming in season nine, we've got conversations with Nick Bateman from Grow Pura, Mary Scala from Freight to Plate, Lottie Van Rijn from Surthon, Robin Vincent from Kenobi, Ralph Weir from Zindu, Tinia Pina from Renewable, Rob Stratton from Skytree and several others that are scheduled but haven't yet been recorded. So we've got a full plate. We almost have the entire roster full for season nine. And there's folks reaching out to make time on the podcast as well. So there's no shortage of conversations coming your way. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.